When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, Sakuya here, and I'm sure that at that point you're expecting to uh, to hear Gabby, but unfortunately Gabby has been sick this week, so I um I do apologize. We have effectively worked ourselves to the bone here getting everything done, but I have some very exciting news. Like today, we are back with our continuation of delving into the Crusades, but it is official. It is official, people. We are at the halfway point. We're considering what is to come. We may actually be, I guess, further than that. Like the previous Crusades had much longer, grander stories. So, I mean, so to speak, they may have actually lasted longer. I mean, depending on how things go, we may be able to get through two in one go. But honestly, I don't know. We will see. First off, before we do a little bit of recap, I want to tell everyone, thank you for being here. Thank you, my hoes, for listening to me every week. Like, especially for, for, for those of you who are here every week, every time a new episode releases, it's insane. Thank you to everyone who is in the podcast. Thank you to everyone who is in Patreon listening to the bonus episodes that we put up every week. Because of all of you, I have actually made the jump and I've gone full time. I know I said this before here, like that I was going to, that I put in my two weeks, that I did all this stuff, but it's actually done. As of recording this, which I am recording here on April 28th, 2022, at like 8.30 at night, it's actually quite late. It's a lot later than I usually record these things, but I've been working on so much stuff. I'm, I'm officially full-time. I'm now a content creator. And so it's because of people like you listening and supporting every single week that I can be here to tell you all these stories. Thank you all for being here. And I really do hope that you enjoy this one, even though it's just me. I know that you all like to listen to Gabby as well, but hey, we all get sick when we're working as hard as we are. So anyway, as I was saying, let's get into that recap. The previous crusade, the fourth crusade, now that had been called by Pope Innocent III to take Jerusalem in 1202, and in it, if you remember from what happened last week, (laughs) the crusaders, instead of going to Jerusalem, sacked Constantinople in 1204, and the Byzantine territories were then distributed between Venice and all of its allies. The actual objective of placing Jerusalem under Christian rule, well, I mean, that's that was still important. It was the primary goal of the church which meant that another crusade had to be prepared, which was now known as the Fifth Crusade, which was called for again in 1215, again by Pope Innocent III. Now, previously, Richard I of England, who during the Third Crusade had promoted the idea of attacking the Muslim states, not via their castles or city strongholds or anything in the Levant, but rather at the soft underbelly, or at least what they saw as the soft underbelly of the Muslim Ayyubid Empire, Egypt, Now, that strategy was going to be more adopted in the hope that if Egypt fell, 
then Jerusalem without the possibility of any kind of reinforcements or supplies, that it would fall too. Because, I mean, it, it kind of makes sense. Like, if you look at the Ayyubid dynasty, like, this had been founded by Saladin, and he and his family would rule Egypt until its conquest by the Mamluks in 1250. And at the time of the Fifth Crusade, the Sultan of Egypt, and therefore the, its most senior ruler in the Muslim Middle East, was a man by the name of Saif al-Din al-Adil. And he was actually the brother of of the late Saladin. While at the time there was this uneasy truce that had been in existence between the Latin East states, such as the Crusader states in the Middle East were known, and the Ayyubids, the latter's recent fortification of different strongholds they had, such as Mount Tabor, which was in Galilee, and others, these threatened the Crusader-held Acre and its surrounding territories. And this was a move which Innocent III used as the kind of spark like like the thing that they needed in order to get people really going and saying no the christendom everything the holy land it's all still under threat and he was going to ignite the flames of religious fervor among western europe's leadership you see for the first time in the run-up to the fifth crusade the preaching of the crusade essentially like the, the way that it's method of how it would recruit volunteers and that sort of thing it was organized by geographical areas, which had guidelines for, like, um, how do I even put this? Like, there would be these provincial boards and their delegates on just, like, how they were supposed to persuade people or who they were supposed to target and that kind of thing. They even had, like, they even had manuals. Like, they had manuals of model kinds of sermons that were best designed to whip up religious fervor and enthusiasm for the cause. And... Of course, nobles and knights with the skills, the means, the money, and everything to travel and fight, they were going to be more intensely targeted, and thus such unofficial popular movements, if you remember that little, um, that thing that we covered here before, that little bonus episode, if you remember from when I released that randomly during this week, the Children's Crusade of 1212, that was supposed to be avoided, because the church did not want papal Move. I say papal. No, more like they didn't want crusades to occur without papal authority because then they weren't really crusades. It was just a mob of peasants who were trying to do things and then ultimately failing. <laughs> so, 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 Pope Innocent III, he did theoretically, mind you, widen the call to all males except monks, but those who were not militarily skilled or did not really have the ability to fight they were encouraged or even sometimes compelled pretty much forced to redeem their vows and then give funds to the cause rather than travel in person you see those who paid but did not travel would still receive the benefit of remission of sins like the, the pope promised that essentially everything that they had done would be forgiven so long as they paid for the crusade and in addition, as was by now typical papal policy, there was going to be a tax one twentieth of income over a three year period, which was imposed on the clergy to help pay for the crusade, which was actually a really big deal because normally that was not something that happened. You didn't tax the church. This was something that like the church was able to consolidate so much wealth precisely because people would donate their wealth to the church and then they didn't pay taxes like that, that wasn't the thing that was really done so that was actually a pretty damn big deal 
the prospect of adventure and all this financial gain that you'd get from war booty and also improving your, you know, your social status, acquiring all the, these new honors, these titles, these these positions. These were all different things that were supposed to motivate people besides just the religious aspect. And so that recruitment campaign was actually very successful, especially in places like Germany, Britain, Italy, Hungary, and the Low Countries, which if you don't know what I mean by Low Countries, the Low Countries, that, that I mean, that's effectively the Netherlands. That's the Dutch. So Pope Innocent III actually died on the 16th of July, 1216, which was before he ever had the chance to see his crusade, you know, start. But his successor, Pope Honorius III, now he had no intention of calling this campaign off. It was going to happen. So the original leader of the crusade and something of a coup, I guess, given that there weren't really many kings in the fourth crusade, this was set to be a man by the name of Frederick II, who was the king of Germany and the future Holy Roman Emperor. But unfortunately, Frederick was actually unable to leave during the whole Fifth Crusade because he was having a large series of internal political problems within his empire. And there was um there were there were there was there was an actual problem with the papacy. <laughs> like, I mean, this is this really is the history of the Holy Roman Empire. I like I want to go into a bunch of side notes about all this for it here, but I feel like just tackling the Holy Roman Empire as like it, it as an entity or something that would take so long. I would I would need to do so many different episodes on so many different emperors slash kings and explain it. It's ah, uh, I can even do the papal investiture controversy. I think that would be a good one as well. That actually would be a quite fun one. Anyway, anyway, so there was a bit of a problem. He had issues both within his empire and also with the pope over his desire to both control the uh, the German lands as well as Sicily, which. The Pope was afraid that if he did, because, you know, Sicily is southern Italy and then you got Germany above it, that this would sandwich the papacy and that would put them in a very dangerous position. So it, it created a lot of issues. The first contingents of the Fifth Crusade were led by a guy called King Andrew of Hungary, who actually reached Acre in the fall of 1217, but didn't actually do anything. I mean, they accomplished very little before just departing in January of 1218. But then a large fleet of Frisian, German, and Italian crusaders arrived in April and joined the remnants of Andrew's force that was still there. In May of 1218, this crusader army landed just west of the city of Damietta, which was in Egypt. And the plan was to take the city, which at the time then had a population of around 60,000 people, and then they were supposed to march along the Nile, heading towards Cairo, which was around 100 miles away, and this army was, it was pretty big. I mean, it numbered around 30,000 men at its peak, mostly consisting of crusader knights from Europe, alongside barons from the Latin East, knights from all the different military orders. I mean, we're talking the Knights Hospitaller, the Knights Templar, the Teutonic Knights, etc. And the army in the field was supposed to be led by a guy by the name of John of Brienne, who was the titular king of the kingdom of Jerusalem. But this was actually going to be one of the big problems of the Fifth Crusade. It was the lack of leadership. I, I mean, this was a huge issue that they faced. And you may wonder when I say, okay, titular kingdom. 
what does that mean? And no, I know exactly when I say that word that you're probably thinking of something dirtier. That is not what I am talking about. Titular means like that's that that's the title. That's the um, he had the title of king of Jerusalem, but it doesn't mean that he actually had the land. So a titular title is referred to as something to where you 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 have the title of something without actually any of the real power to enforce it, if that makes sense. So you'd have claimants might be the titular king to so-and-so territory or the titular Dutch, like Duke, that, that kind of thing of a duchy. I, I hope that that makes sense for those that are listening. The man who was in charge on the other side of leading the Muslim army and defending Egypt was a guy by the name of Al-Kamil, who was the son of the Sultan and his successor from August of 1218 until 1238 CE. And Damietta was the first target of the crusade because it had these three rings of massive fortifications, like all these walls that were going around it. And there was this moat that was between the first and the second walls and then 28 towers that were built into the ladder. Like this was a fortress, not just a city. But as they had say it, said regarding it, the whole thing was I mean, it was the key. They had to take this specific thing in order to be able to take anything else, because if they didn't, there was going to be a strong point at their rear that could attack them at any given moment. So what the Crusader army did was they set up camp on the west or the far bank of the river outside of the city. And then the first obstacle before the invaders ever got into the city proper was to get past this huge chain that was hung between the city walls and there was a small but very fortified island in the Nile Delta and that chain would block access to the city's harbor. This is actually very similar to what we discussed um, for those for those that remember when we talked about the Fourth Crusade, how they had a chain that went across the harbor that allowed uh, th th that really helped the defense of Constantinople. Like this was a very common thing that was done in harbors in an effort to protect your city so that someone couldn't just sail a boat up into it here and start launching attacks anywhere. The tower was garrisoned by a force of around 300 men, which could then be resupplied thanks to a bridge that was built by boats linking the tower to Damietta, and it was the only like it was like the only real key access point for it. And it was only when a siege tower was built on two ships that were lashed together that the Crusaders managed on the 24th of August to capture it and then finally lower the chain. But just because they took the chain, that is not the same thing as taking Damietta itself. That's just the outer wall of the outer wall. Like it, It's not even the actual defenses of the city. It's just the outer defenses of the outer defenses. And so the city was still there. It was still strong. It was still formidable. And there was a threat that at any given moment, Al-Kamil, who kept stationed with a large army on the eastern side of the Nile, could attack. But significantly, winter was now closing in, and the Crusaders were having some serious difficulties. I, their camp was flooded by the Nile during a storm on the 29th of November, and the age-old problem of supplies for a besieging army also became a really bad thing. I mean, scurvy was rife everywhere. The inhabitants of Damietta, as one could imagine from this, they were not really doing much better. They were in a very similar situation. 
And so all winter, spring, and summer, the two sides were effectively at a kind of standoff. The Crusaders were sufficiently entrenched to make any attack on the city highly dangerous, but they did not have the manpower for a full-scale assault on the city or on Alcamil's force. Indeed, like, some of the contingents of the Crusaders just decided, screw it, like, this is not worth it, and they went ahead and returned home. Those that remained, they hoped that the balance would be tipped in their favor when Frederick II finally arrived, as was long promised, with a large army. But when news arrived that Frederick would not be coming until the next year, the Crusaders had rallied themselves, and they were boosted by the arrival of no less than this figure called Francis of Assisi, who tried unsuccessfully, mind you, to convince the Muslims that God was definitely not on their side, and then in autumn of 1219, it was clear that the lower-than-usual levels of the Nile that year had reduced crops, and now not only disease, but starvation was a real possibility for both sides. Thus, in September, Al-Kamil, perhaps realizing that the garrison of Damietta really only had a very limited time left, and fearing that more crusaders were going to arrive in a large army, he offered them a truce, with really, really good terms for them. In the end, he would be allowed to keep Damietta, and in return for this, he would give the Latins control of Jerusalem. Because the the honest reality of it, and this is where it really... um. People don't necessarily get it. Despite the religious significance to both sides, the holy city of Jerusalem was not actually valuable. Strategically speaking, it was good for morale, but really nothing else. I mean, this thing had long been neglected by the Ayyubids. Like, parts of Palestine would also be handed over, showing that Al-Kamil was more interested in his wider empire. Because Egypt... And Syria, like these lands, they were way, 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 way richer. So even if they lost that, it didn't really matter because they could always take it back here in the future because their economic base was still secure. Which that economic base, that's the exact reason why the Crusaders were going after Egypt in the first place. Like I mean, that, That's literally why they were there. So considering that the objective of the crusade was after capturing Egypt to then take Jerusalem, this offer was very surprisingly rejected by a number of the crusade leadership. So, I mean, John of Brienne, like the guy who was supposedly in charge in the Teutonic Knights, they wanted to accept. But the Knights Templar, the Knights Hospitaller, the Venetians, a lot of the senior religious leaders, like ironically, the religious leaders, they did not. Like, this latter group, they were more concerned that without the vital fortresses of Kerak and Montreal, which Al-Kamil intended to actually keep, it was going to be really difficult for the Crusaders to hold on to their gains if shortly after all of this was done, it, there would be another war with the Ayyubids. Like, they wouldn't actually have any defensive points to really hold on to. So, most of all, the arrival of the Frederick, better late than never, honestly, they, he, that would mean almost certain victory for the Westerners, and then they could just take what they wanted. Like, they didn't need to engage in a truce, they could just seize all of it, including Egypt. So they're like, no, 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 okay, we're going to wait. And thus, the siege went on. They rejected it. And so with his peace offer rejected, Al-Kamil instead decided to go on the offensive, and he attacked the Crusader camp, 
but his army was repulsed. And so in November of 1219, the Crusaders attacked Damietta, and after breaking through a ruined tower, the city's just at this point, there were pretty meager defenses, like everything had been worn down over over the months and months and months. They were breached. And when the Crusaders broke inside, it was not a pretty scene. Like they could see that the enemies, like the streets was just littered with bodies. And those who were still alive were suffering from just extreme malnutrition and disease. Like they, there is physically no way that they could have actually held on to this anymore anyway. So it was a success, but the thing is, Damietta was going to be the only success of the campaign for the Crusaders. Taking advantage of the Crusaders' indecision as to what to do next, Al-Kamil, as a precaution, he moved his army around 25 miles south, still hugging the Nile. And meanwhile, the Crusaders debated over who was supposed to actually control their new prize. The Pope's representatives wanted to keep it for Frederick, while John of Brienne wanted it for himself. And so to better stake his claim, he even started minting his own coins. But in the end, a compromise was reached, which like, essentially what it did is it gave John custody of it until Frederick arrived. And even more crucial to the crusade was the debate over what was actually going to come next. Like, they could march on and take Cairo, or they could use Damietta as a bargaining chip to gain more territory in Palestine, including Jerusalem. Incredibly, incredibly, it took a year and a half for the arrival of the force of Germany under the command of Ludwig of Bavaria for the Crusaders to decide on the former action. And even then in the spring of 1221, they were just they moved so slowly by land and river towards their goal. Like, they, they, just, they, they just dawdled the entire time. Meanwhile, Al-Kamil had been able to take advantage of the enemy's indecision and begin to fortify his camp at Mansura and call upon the support of his allies in Syria and Mesopotamia. So in July of 1221, the Crusaders moved to attack the enemy at Mansura. However, Al-Kamil had chosen his site very wisely, and it was easily defended thanks to his position at the joining of a tributary to the Nile itself. Also, within a month, the annual rising of the Nile was going to occur, but the Crusaders didn't seem to be in any kind of hurry. Like, they didn't seem to, either they didn't know or they didn't care, they didn't understand the significance of it, which meant that time was on the Muslim side this time, not theirs. And so Al-Kamil Eagerly awaiting a support army in the coming floods, he now chose this moment to offer a new truce deal with the enemies. Perhaps maybe this was genuine. Maybe it was just something to try and delay them further to give them a chance to consider. But the Crusaders rejected it. After like after they defeated a small raiding party, they then immediately moved to attack Alchemil's fortified camp in August. And the Muslim leader allowed them to move forward unchecked. And then he sank four ships behind the Crusaders army, which prevented them from escaping should they try to withdraw. Meanwhile, the Muslim armies had arrived from the north and taking a position to the northeast, they blocked any land retreat by the Crusaders. And it was at this moment that the Nile waters started to rise. The Crusader ships began to flounder in all this treacherous water, and what followed was a chaotic retreat. When Al-Kamil opened the sluice into the surrounding fields, the whole area was flooded waist-deep, 
And on the 28th of August, 1221, the Crusader army surrendered and a truce was agreed upon. Al-Kamil got Damietta back and all Muslim prisoners. And amazingly enough, the Crusader army would be allowed to return home unmolested. Despite all of the money, all of the effort, all of the planning, all of that religious zeal, it was another massive flop of a crusade. And so, yeah, it was a complete failure. In the years after the Fifth Crusade, there was a lot of debate and finger pointing as to who exactly was to blame for the disaster, but it didn't matter. I mean, in the end, though, the decision by the West to attack Egypt and not Jerusalem, that was actually quite concerning to the Ayyubids. Like, they didn't know what would happen if a larger Crusader army made a second, but more decisive and actually, you know, aggressive attempt at doing so. That, of course, directly leads us into the Sixth Crusade, which I'm so glad that I wrote this now because we actually have time to cover it because, again, the Fifth Crusade was such an immediate horrible flop that we can immediately move on to the next. So this is the Sixth Crusade. Now, the reason I say this is the Sixth Crusade is that effectively it's a direct add-on to the Fifth Crusade because it was done by Frederick II, who was supposed to be the big man of the Fifth Crusade in the first place. Which we're going to get into that here because there needs to be a little bit of context that explains this before we actually cover that. And this is why I'm saying covering the HRE would be so expansive and fun to do. So Frederick had not left Europe during the Fifth Crusade despite his promise to do so because he found himself in a power struggle with the papacy over his right to be crowned the Holy Roman Emperor. Because first Pope Innocent III and then his successor, Honorius, they were concerned at Frederick's control of both Central Europe and also Sicily, which effectively would encircle the Papal States in Italy. So Honorius pushed for Frederick to fulfill his original Crusader vows and to take back Jerusalem for Christendom, and that distraction might also prove advantageous to the papacy and allow them some breathing space in Italy as well as potentially while they were gone to take back some territory. <laughs> Who knows? So Frederick was finally made Holy Roman Emperor in 1220, and he acquired a more personal connection to the Middle East when in November of 1225, he married Isabella II, the heiress to the throne of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. The emperor would, after all, travel to the Levant and take the Kingdom of Jerusalem, throne and all, for himself. Assembling a large crusader army, Frederick's departure, long since scheduled for the 15th of August, 1227, was delayed once again, this time by illness, possibly cholera, we don't really know, and then by this time, the new pope, Gregory IX, he ran out of patience, like this was stupid, this guy was supposed to be on crusade almost a decade earlier. So he ran out of patience and excommunicated this would-be crusader in September of 1227, as the papacy had earlier vowed to do so if the emperor's promises were still not honored. This was not a good start. Like, this did not seem like a good start to crusade at all, where the leader of it is excommunicated. Still, still, those leaders of the crusade who had already made it to the Middle East, they took the opportunity of the delay to put their men to good use and get on with some of the building work, fortifying different key strong points such as Jaffa, uh, Caesarea, even a brand new headquarters for the castles of the Teutonic Knights at Montfort. And so, despite 
despite his problems with the church, Frederick II was undeterred and arrived in Acre in the Middle East on the 7th of September, 1228, determined to do what no noble before him had actually accomplished because they all had failed. I mean, I say no noble, but obviously the first ones had done so with the first crusade. But, but you get what I mean. All of these guys for the past like 100 or so years had just failed to take back Jerusalem. I mean, he certainly had the best trained and equipped men in comparison to any of the previous crusaders armies. And almost all of his warriors were paid professionals, numbering something along the lines of 10,000 infantry and perhaps 2,000 knights. There remained, of course, that um, inconveniencing little fact that Frederick had been excommunicated, and that did have some results in the fact that a bunch of the leaders of the more pious military orders in, the, in like in the Levant, especially the Knights Templar and the Knights Hospitaller, they felt that it was impossible to be seen as serving a figure who was outside of the church. So the emperor got around that problem by appointing separate and thus theoretically independent commanders for those knights to follow, which was actually a pretty smart move because then they could plausibly deny like, no, 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 we're not following Frederick. We're following Ludwig, who just so happened to have been told to lead us by Frederick. But we're not actually following Frederick. Like this guy is separate. It was effectively that kind of idea. And it's a really smart little thing that was done to try and get around the church. The emperor's plans had also been slightly knocked out of tilt with the unfortunate death of his wife Isabella during childbirth in May of 1228. So Frederick decided to reign as regent for his newborn son Conrad, who actually survived, replacing his father-in-law John of Brienne, who had been regent for his daughter Isabella prior to her marriage. John, who had led the army of the failed Fifth Crusade, as we talked about before, was not pleased to be ousted from power and swore revenge. Not that he actually had the ability to do anything in the first place. Hell, the man didn't even have any titles or land that he could use. But Frederick was not without opposition in the kingdom of Jerusalem itself, where many of the nobles resisted any changes to the political status quo. You see, Frederick planned to redistribute certain hereditary lands, and his promotion of like Teutonic Knight military orders were particular sticking points that pissed people off. So what happened is that Frederick and his army marched from Acre to Jaffa in early 1229 to try and threaten the area. And like such a force, it hadn't happened since the Fifth Crusade. And at the same time, Al-Kamil, he faced this dangerous coalition of rivals within the Ayyubid dynasty. Because in the last two years, the sultan's own brother, Al-Muzazim, or Muazim, or Muazim, I'm actually not sure how I would say that, but he was the emir of Damascus. And he had joined forces with these Turkish mercenaries to threaten Al-Kamil's territory in northern Iraq. Al-Muazim, he died of dysentery, though, in 1227, but the threat from his followers, especially to Al-Kamil's ambitions in Damascus, which was now led by Al-Kamil's rebel nephew, Al-Nasir Duwad, those were still there. And so consequently, the two leaders began negotiations to avoid war, which if it actually happened, that was going to seriously damage both sides' commercial interests in the region and potentially weaken them further to the point that just like what happened in the first, first crusade, this was going to divide them enough that they could just get attacked. So Frederick 
was no doubt helped in his diplomatic efforts by the fact that he knew Arabic. He had this kind of sympathy towards the culture. Like, this is, I want to cover him in general, like, as a full character at some point in the future. Like, he genuinely was impressive. He spoke, like, six different languages. He had all these different multicultural, like, advisors from all over the world. Like, think about it like this. If you know anything about Kublai Khan, and what it is that he did for taking like the best and the most skilled people, regardless of their faith or ethnicity or any of this stuff, because he wanted them in his court because he was the emperor of the world as he saw it. That that was pretty much Frederick. Like that's what he saw himself. He loved all these other cultures. And so he even had his own personal like bodyguard core of Muslims who served him as his bodyguard and a kind of harem i guess like it wasn't exactly a harem but it was the fact that the man um the man got around and he had a number of official like mistresses who were his in sicily (laughs) and these were uh you know products of his time in sicily with its very significant arab population al Kamil, on the other hand he had already offered jerusalem as a bargaining chip during the negotiations if you remember from the fifth crusade And if need be, he could always retake Jerusalem once the Crusader army had departed back to Europe. It seems that both leaders were very keen to just safeguard their own empires and were like this was much more important than any kind of squabble over Jerusalem would be because, again, it didn't really have much strategic or commercial value. It was mostly religious. And at the same time, any gains could be maximized and the concessions minimized when presenting the deal to each leader's followers. So on the 18th of February, 1229, the Treaty of Jaffa was signed between the two leaders, which permitted Christians to reoccupy the holy places of Jerusalem, except the temple areas, which remained under the control of the Muslim religious authorities. Resident Muslims were to leave the city, but they could visit the holy sites on pilgrimage. Under the detailed terms of the agreement, there was going to be no new construction or artistic additions. Nothing was allowed to be permitted at these holy sites. Neither side was allowed to build any kind of fortifications or anything. Though This later was going to be disputed when it was applied to Jerusalem. And included in the deal were other important sites of significance to Christians, such as Bethlehem and Nazareth. And the sultan, in return for these concessions, would get a 10-year truce guarantee and the promise that Frederick would defend Al-Kamil's interest against all enemies, even Christians. So even if Christians tried to come in and attack Egypt, Frederick was to actually come to his aid and protect him. So Frederick then entered Jerusalem in triumph on the 17th of March, 1229, and he crowned himself in this little impromptu ceremony in the Holy Sepulchre. And the nobles didn't exactly take kind to this. They were very aggravated at having not been consulted during the negotiation process, and the commoners were also not very appreciative of the fact that you had this foreign monarch who was now just there meddling in all their affairs. And so this group of very disgruntled Latins in Acre even began to pelt the emperor with meat and, like, shit as he left for his home in May of 1229. See, Frederick was sorely needed back in Italy where Pope, uh, where Pope Gregory IX, he had cynically taken the opportunity of the emperor's absence 
to go ahead and invade southern Italy, with uh, Sicily being the ultimate target of just, you know, seizing it. The Papal States was going to now seize the entirety of the southern half of Italy, effectively. And significantly, the leader of the Pope's army was Frederick's own father-in-law, John of Brienne. And so would end the Sixth Crusade. Jerusalem finally back under Christian control. Of course, considering how the fact that we know that there is a Seventh Crusade and a Eighth Crusade, you all are aware that that control cannot possibly last. But that's it. That's the end of the Fifth and the Sixth Crusade. I do hope that you enjoyed listening to my little story here today, and I do hope to see you all next time. Thank you very much for listening, my hoes. Thank you for all being here and supporting me in this. I'm now full-time, which means that everything that I do here, everything that you all watch, listen, etc. to regarding me, that is now everything that I have to support me. Thank you very much, and goodbye. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.